Hello and welcome to the 495. I'm your host, Doug Sparks, editor in chief of Merrimack Valley Magazine. You can turn this down. Yeah, slightly. I got loud on you, didn't? We are. That's all right. <laughs> Safe and sound, and in good health. And yeah. happy to be here on a on a Wednesday. How's everything going with you? Very well, very well. As we were talking before the show, Facebook just changed everything up. So they, they it's, always it's a circus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it always they they keep us on our toes, yeah. for sure. Uh, so I, I believe there's an Ask the Editor question. Yes, there is, uh, from Rob. And Rob asks today, you mentioned style guides on previous episodes. Is there any case in particular that you tend to stray from what the style guide says? Yeah. Uh, so for people that understand what this means, it, when you work for a publication or uh, you know, a newspaper, they usually have a, a, a particular style guide. And it's, it's great to have this reference because it means you don't have to... Um, research the entire history of the English language when you want to solve one little grammatical style problem. And the one we use is the Associated Press. I brought this in for for show and tell. Uh, This is an outdated guide. I've moved just to using the online version Mm because it's searchable. I keep these for a few reasons. One is the the section on uh, the, the section on the law is still good and I don't think that's online and also we have interns come in sometimes and they don't have subscription to online so they come into my office and they they use this so this is what the style book looks like and it has rules for everything and what's hyphenated and how to handle all sorts of of different problems most of the time we do not um, veer from AP style the people in charge, when you first start using AP style, you think, why on earth are they making this so difficult? What's going on? And then the, the more you spend time with it, the more you realize, ah, these people are smarter than I am. Yeah. The reason why they do it this way is because they have dealt with problems over and over again. And now that I'm starting to see those problems, ah, now yeah. I now I see why it is uh, the way it is. The, and we also don't want to have in-house exceptions because what happens, uh, you know, the week that I'm sick and someone else has to to edit, or, or uh, you know, like there, things can change. So it's just nice to have. No, we will always use AP all the time, and mm-hmm. this even comes into play when, um, like, one of the the things about AP style is a lot of times titles, titles after a name are lowercase. Yeah. So company leaders always want their titles to be uppercase, and they'll say, no, I'm the director of finance. That's yes. capital, capital D, capital D. F. Yeah. saying, no, it isn't. We have the AP style <laughs> guy right here, and everybody has to accord to that. Right. Uh, so it's, it's, it's great. It's not what it says it's, on his business card. It's though. not what it says on his business cards, <laughs> yeah. but it's, it's great for handling things like that. The, um, there's certain problems uh, that come up, uh, like, for example, the word native. This happens all the time where people say, I'm... Um, uh, you know, like a, a Draket native, right. uh, but they weren't born in Draket. They were born in Lowell. Yeah. And according to AP style, native doesn't mean I grew up in Draket. It means I was born. Oh. So so then I have to make the decision as an editor. Am I going to contact this person and say, by the way, where, are you, where were you born? And then explain AP style and, you know, yep. spend all this time I don't have. Or do I just say grew up in? Yeah. Uh, the other big thing is is comma placement. This is this uh. is beyond AP style. This is yeah. just a feature of the English language. Uh, so, for example, my wife Tracy versus my wife comma Tracy has a different meaning. With one, I'm a polygamist, 
right? <laughs> and yeah. with one, it's I'm talking about my only wife. Right. Well and good for wives, all right, or, or spouses. Uh, but when you're talking about brothers and uncles and aunts, now it becomes a problem because if the writer says, hey, this is my uncle, comma, Tony, now yeah. I have to figure out how many uncles does this person have? Is this something that needs to be corrected? That's an example where we may override AP based on our time constraints. Yep. I mean, there was definitely a time early on in the magazine when I spent an afternoon trying to find out how many brothers somebody had who was casually mentioned in a piece about chicken soup. And it was like, wh- yeah. why are you banging your head against what are we the doing wall? Here? Yeah, yeah that, we'll just, we'll, we'll let this one fly. So that would be the rare exception to AP style. Uh, and, and then um, maybe the only other thing that pops into my head is uh, s- a lot of AP is, is very contemporary, it's very progressive, but they do have holdovers from the early days of journalism. For example, they don't use accent marks ever, even on foreign language words. And the reason why is, originally it was all transmitted by teletype machine, right. where there were no accents. So we will occasionally have a restaurant with an accent in the name, mm-hmm. and we will we will keep the accent. That that flies in the face of a strict AP style. That's a judgment call. We try to avoid those judgment calls because what happens is this week I make the judgment call to put the accent in. Right. Six months later, I'll use the exact same restaurant name and I'll say, no, we're being strict AP style and I'll take it out. Yep. That's the problem with, with, with going about it that way. Yep. So if you have a center hand book, stick to it most of the time and yeah, you, won't, yeah. you won't run into conflicts. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, so our guest today, I'm going to introduce our guest. Our guest is named uh, Brenda Bonfortier. And did, did, when did this come out? Did this come out? February 27th. I was say, this just came out. And she's yeah. written a book called Organizational Change in an Urban Police Department. I brought in my copy right here that I've been reading. Uh, and it's fantastic. So before we get into the book, I want people to know a little bit about you. Uh, you're a first-generation college student, is that right? I am. Okay, so yep. tell me about how you, the path from 18-year-old you to to this. Uh, I don't know, actually, but uh, all uh, sort of luck, I think. Yeah. But, um, so thanks for having me. It's fun to be oh, here. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Dracut, mm-hmm. and so when I, I'm a first-generation college student, uh, my parents did not go to college, and when I was at that point to decide what to do, I thought I would look at Northern Essex Community College, mm-hmm. and I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go for my first two years. So um, I have to tell you that um, just thinking back um, on my start at NECO, we called it NECO. I don't know if they still call it NECO. Yeah, but I, I, yeah. I, I hear both. Yeah. But people who go to NECO, I always hear NECO. Yeah. And then people who don't go, I hear NEC. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I started calling yeah. it NECO. NECO. Because I have, you know, lot, I know lots of people who yeah. are there. Yeah, so okay. uh, we always called it NECO. Yeah. But anyway, I, um, I really just landed there because I didn't know what else I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And I got a full scholarship. I went there and got my associates in, in what? criminal justice. Criminal justice. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Why did you choose that when you were unsure about what direction? Honestly, that's a great question. In high school, my senior year of high school, I took a civics class. Ah, okay. And I just thought, Good teacher? Was uh, it the yes, of the yes, teacher? Mr. Troy, ah. um, who I is no longer with us, but mm. I, um, it just piqued my interest, okay. like something hadn't before, mm-hmm. and so I really just thought, I'll just take a shot at this. I don't know what else I'm going to do, so I did criminal justice, and honestly, I loved it. Yeah, I had a great time at. NECO. Um, as a first-generation college student, I honestly can say it opened my eyes to a world that I just 
could not have imagined. Yeah. And it really did, honestly, when I think about that community college, it changed my life. Wow. Yeah. So That's then great. I, um, and I loved school. <laughs> I just got, obviously, I'm still in school. Um, it, uh, I definitely got the bug. And so I transferred over to UMass Lowell. Okay. In their CJ program. Okay. And uh, finished the CJ program there. And I don't know how much you want to know, but uh, in terms of this path, um, really was interested in criminal justice. Just yeah. fascinated. Did you by have to make a decision about where to take a criminal justice uh, degree? Like, were you thinking about law enforcement? Were yeah. you thinking everything was kind of on the table, but you ultimately decided to go to Brandeis for mm -hmm. graduate school? Yeah and to go into public administration. Yeah. Why did you make that choice? So it was just interesting. I think um, just that experience, the experience of being in school and interacting with people just opened my eyes and helped mm. me learn a lot about all these things I didn't know, of course, which is really the purpose of going to college. Yeah. Um, I wanted to be a juvenile probation officer. Hmm. And that was my interest. I wanted to work with kids, and I wanted to do juvenile probation. So when I was at ULOL, I did an, an internship at Lowell District Court in juvenile probation, which was great, mostly like the kinds of things an undergrad might do in an internship. Hmm. Uh, but it reinforced my interest in probation. And then I got a job at UMass Lowell. So I worked at UMass Lowell while I was in school. Hmm. And I worked at what was then their research foundation and started to learn about different kinds of things like grants and sort of the research arm of the university. Right. And I ended up transferring into like a center. Uh, I got a job at a center that did a lot of community engagement work and prevention. And I thought, well, this is closer to sort of the kinds of things. I used to work in the accounting department, yeah. uh, which taught me a lot. But um, mm -hmm. I wanted to be more involved in the community, but again, sort of still focused on this idea of juvenile probation. Since I worked there, I started taking courses there, and I, I entered into the master's community social psych program because I was starting to realize that, like, you need a, or I thought I wanted more of a sort of a well-rounded education, not just strictly criminal justice, because I was learning a lot about sort of prevention and community, and so the community psych program was a good way to sort of build off of the CJ. Mm -hmm. And it was while I worked at this center and was in the community psych program that I started to work with the Lowell PD. This was in the early 90s. Okay. Um, they, start, they came over to the university and asked if we could help them with some grants or evaluations on some grants that they wanted to um, apply for. At that time, I had no interest or idea about sort of policing. I mean, I pretty much knew one thing, don't go near them. Right. Right? That was sure. sort of like what everybody um, sort of grew up thinking. And um, simultaneously in my grad program, I was doing an internship. I went back to juvenile probation. Hmm. But this time I had cases, and so I was supervising juveniles on cases. And that experience really taught me that I did not want to be a juvenile probation officer. I thought, you know, this is not for me. Because? I just, uh, direct service, you know, sort of, you have to be, you have to have it in you to right. do the kind of work yeah. that juvenile probation officers do. It's a tough job. And it just taught me that I don't think I'm, I didn't think I was comfortable or well suited to do that kind of work. And that you have to have it in you. You have sure. to be, you just have to be driven to do that kind of work, which turned out to be one of the best experiences of my life yeah. because I thought, 
I don't think this is really what I want to do. Sure. So, so take us yeah. back, by the way, Yeah. Uh, to the Lowell Police Department of the yeah. 1990s. Yeah. Uh, for people who choose not to remember or who remember as a refresher or who are young, Yeah. Uh, what was going on in Lowell in the 90s when you got involved with the... Uh, the police department. So um, it was the Lowell PD was this, a typical police agency in the 80s and 90s. It was typical of other agencies, police agencies across the country. Um, primarily sort of law enforcement focused, meaning to enforce the law. Right. Uh, you certainly had people in the department who would do sort of community relations. Hmm. Um, but and you know uh, some officers who were inclined to be more sort of engaged and you know know people on their beats and things like that but for the most part it was pretty um pretty closed in terms of the type of community relationships they had as an institution right so it was more responding to calls uh, don't forget that in the 80s and 90s there was sort of a lot of drugs, there was sort of the war on drugs was a national policy right. that really pushed sort of this idea of addressing drugs or drug crime or violence in sort of pretty, I mean, militaristic ways is sort of a strong yeah. statement. I, I think but, your book, you, you kind of talk about this warrior mentality, yeah. which also led to almost like an us versus them. Yeah. But then there was, was there some sort of corruption also going on around Well, I mean, in the city of Lowell right. in that time, there was sort of a lot going on in terms of um, uh, questionable practices. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe individual officers in terms of sort of pressing the boundaries yeah. of relationships with businesses right. and things like that. But, you know, we had a city manager who was... Uh, engaged in some activity that was questionable, sure. ethical violations. Um, so there was, but again, this was at a time where I think for a lot of municipalities, you um, didn't have the accountability or the transparency or the community expectation about behavior. So Lowell was fairly typical of many cities in right. terms of government does government work including the police and the community is over here and never the two shall meet yeah. and when we need you we will ask but in terms of the community being involved in government or police prioritizing or decision making that wasn't the model hmm. really it was not the model so Lowell had challenges in the community mm -hmm. in terms of a lot of drugs um, it was the heroin capital What about the, of the challenge world? of, of uh, reaching out to um, diverse communities? Mm -hmm. Like, for example, the Cambodia. I was yeah. reading your book, the Cambodian yeah. population had a real tough time yeah. dealing with the police because, well, you, you tell me, right? Yeah. They didn't see themselves reflected yeah. in the, uh, you, know, you know, these white police officers yep. kind yep. of rolling yeah, yeah, into yeah. the neighborhoods, yeah. and it just seemed very like us versus them. Yeah. Well, it was... It was us versus them, but it was really not. It was more driven by the fact that this city had an experience with the influx of refugees from Southeast Asia that had been unprecedented. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, the city was ill-prepared. However, stepped up pretty quickly to figure out how do we support people, how do we provide services to yeah. people, how do we help people. So you're there when all this is happening? Uh, well, this was mostly in the 80s. I okay. didn't get there until the early okay. 90s. Early yeah. 90s. 
90s, and yeah. now what starts to happen in the yeah. early 90s? So um, I think there's just sort of a, a recognition, not just in the police department, but in the community, that we have got to get a handle on not just the demographic changes in the city, but also sort of how do we shift our destiny so that we can um, thrive, right? Economic development is right. directly tied to how safe people feel and whether or not businesses and employees are willing to spend time right. in this community. So, is, that, is this when people start talking about broken window theory? You mentioned yeah, this yeah, in the book. Yeah. So, what's broken window theory? So, broken window theory is sort of this idea that if if you have an area of a community, a street or a block that is uh, physically a mess looks a mess, uh, you have um, unkempt lots or abandoned buildings, boarded out homes, or not even boarded up, but vacant. And so there's just generally this physical view that a, an area is a mess. It sends a signal that people don't care about it, and you know there are a lot of reasons why that might be. Uh, but it also sort of provides an opportunity for criminal behavior to happen because people are thinking nobody's watching this place. This yeah. isn't very well cared for. And there is some suggestion that uh, those types of characteristics can foster crime and other types of disorder like public drinking, um, drug dealing, or things like that. Okay. And so the idea, at, so the shift that was happening in Lowell in the early 90s was one that was sort of happening nationally, too, around sort of this recognition that, one, the police and the community need to have very strong relationships, because when they do, the p community will trust the police and talk to the police, and the police can learn from the community and help to address community mm. um needs and priorities and responses. And and again, the police need the community in order to affect crime. Mm -hmm. So nationally, there was sort of this conversation about the introduction of what was called community policing. And broken windows was sort of one of the ways in which uh, people were talking about, well, how do you not just deal with crime, but also help to improve the quality of neighborhoods? Yeah. So you're, just as these, this kind of philosophical change is happening, you're getting involved. But we're also not, we don't yet see data we don't obviously don't see cell phone cameras. Yeah, yeah, we don't yeah. see some of the technological things that are going to come yep. later on in the mm -hmm. next century. Uh, so you're involved with this, and then you decide from this experience, well, I want to continue on, and you end up going to to Brandeis. Yes. Well, what, what I so what I did is I I in, early in that time that I worked at UMass Lowell, started working with the PD. I had the opportunity to move over to the PD to work there. Yeah. So I went to work. Uh, there during some of this shift in the early 90s, in 95, uh, well, mid-90s, actually, I went over to the work, the work at the PD writing grants and helping to create new programs, helping to sort of do some things with the community. Yeah. So, um, and that's... Did you feel, so, and this is, this is a question for then, it's also, like, you still work with the low police. Yeah, yeah. Um, was there a trust issue in the beginning? Because there was. Okay. You're like, trust by whom? Okay. By whom, I think. Yeah. Trust within or outside? Oh, within. Yeah. Well, of course. Like, did you have to win people over? Was oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, it was a, a, cha a complete change in the age. So there was a change happening in the city. You had a lot of city leaders. There was a change in leadership. Uh, Richard Johnson came in. So Jim Campbell was a city manager early on. And then Dick Johnson... Uh, came in to help to move the city along. So there was city leadership change. Uh, also, city councilors changed. Um, 
at the police department, uh, Jack Sheehan, who had been the police chief for a, a superintendent for a while, he retired and Ed Davis came in as the acting superintendent. So I came in then. And, you know, in almost any organization, when you have new leadership, uh, people do things differently. So I came in with a, a number of other people, also introduced at a time where there was a lot of introduction of new policies and new practices, and it wasn't just in the police department, but it was sort of like, let's work with the community. And so this was a major, major shift in the way this police department operated, which, again, was sort of moving along nationally with what was happening. And um, like any change, some people are very happy about it. And some people are not. People don't know what it's going to mean for them. So there's like some really interesting dynamics about what happens. And so as an outsider, again, a lot of organizations, you bring in outsiders, people are like, well, what do they know about what we're doing and what are they trying to do? And um, so there was definitely um, a lot of skepticism about sort of a lot of these changes and what was happening around policy and practice and new people. Mm -hmm. But I feel like, I mean, I worked there almost seven years. I feel like over time, you get to know people individually, you work with people on things. They either accept you and your job or they don't, yeah. I think. And I, I mean, I still have done work. For, I mean, I've been gone from there for a long time. And so I'm lucky that I still have worked with them in other projects in different ways. Yeah. You know, one of the things you mentioned at the beginning of the book that I found interesting that I, I guess I hadn't thought about is policing is in some ways, in its its modern form, kind of a new profession. Mm -hmm. And we still don't, and I, I think you say we still don't quite know what works. Yeah. We're still trying to figure out like yeah. what's effective and what your, your goals are, mm -hmm. right? And data and all these yeah. kind of changes right now sort of changes yeah. the yeah. impact on that. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think about it that way. But it's it's obvious. Yeah. It's like yeah, we we don't the most informed people don't always know the right path ahead or what's going to be most effective. Yeah, and I think that's I mean it's uh, honestly it's as we go back to my the question you had about how did I end up here, um, I couldn't have predicted it, and I really have become such a supporter of the importance of the police. Now that sounds like an obvious statement to make in terms of of course they're important. But as I mentioned, you know, if you don't have safety in a community, then people won't go out and do what they want to do. They won't hang around in the park. They won't uh, frequent downtown businesses or venues, or in, in this case, in Lowell, right? Yeah. So, um, and also this police department in particular, in this shift over time, individuals within the agency really sort of stepped up to become leaders in terms of helping to bring the community and other people along. So I feel like I'm biased, but the Lowell PD really didn't just move from this traditional police agency, but they really stepped up and became a leader in how to develop and support um, a thriving urban mid-sized city okay. in Lowell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this this is, I think, uh, part of the point of the book yeah, is, yeah. is Lowell actually can serve as a model on the national stage for community policing. What did they do? Yeah. What Great. did they do that yeah. makes them a model? Great question. And they were a model. And are a model. They still looked at it. So, I mean, they did a number of things. And I think I, I document this both through my own experience, but because they have all of the data and everything uh, to talk about that. Um, first, they invested in and really um, valued genuinely the relationships with the community. And so the community is broadly defined, right? Residents, 
immigrant communities, different communities, so they invested in how do we boost race relations, how do we come to understand these different communities that live within this community. Um, the creation of the neighborhood precincts, uh, not just saying we're going to show up at your meeting, but we're actually going to locate ourselves in your neighborhood so that you can get to know us. So just adopting this model of being, um, having these relationships with the community. And also businesses, the university, Middlesex, community college, nonprofit organizations, faith-based organizations. So there was a monumental effort to build relationships and interact with the community because you, in order for a police department to be successful, they need to be viewed as legitimate mm. in the eyes of the community. And the only way you can achieve legitimacy is through relationships, uh, transparency, uh, follow through, as, you know, showing up and saying, we trust, you know, we trust you as a community, we need you to trust us. And so this enormous investment in building relationships with the community through changing the mission, investing in programs, activities. So there was an enormous amount of that work done. Um, so that was one of the most important ways that they would, you know, sort of change this relationship and become this model. Uh, trying things out, but also being aware that not everything is going to work, but being forthcoming about that, right? Um, and communicating with the community, I think, is important because the police department doesn't have um, all kinds of resources and being out there and saying we have to make decisions about what we have and how we do that. And so they did a lot of that. I think the other thing that Lowell does really well and has in the past and still does is leveraging state, local, and federal policy policy in itself of itself but also policy makers and so in the in the, the research I talk about just relationships with state policymakers which were necessary in order to support some legislation legislative changes that they wanted to make but also Such as, what were the sort of uh, um, legislation well first of all the uh, retirement of Jack Sheehan uh, so in order to um, shift the direction of the agency from more of a traditional police agency, which had been the norm, to a community policing agency. Uh, they wanted to make some leadership changes, and Jack Sheehan said, if you want to do that, I need to retire, but in order to do that, you need to have some legislative changes and to get Ed Davis in there mm -hmm. uh, because of the civil service system that existed at the time in terms of how a new police chief comes in. So it's a much, it's a pretty complicated bureaucratic policy process that had to happen in order to shift that leadership at the, at the low PD. Yeah. In addition, though, you had, you know, the state reps and the state senators trying to boost community policing, uh, get money to come to Lowell. So Kennedy and Kerry were very much involved in helping uh, the city get grants in order to support a lot of this. And, of course, Marty Meehan was in Congress at the time, and so he also uh, used his um, work in D.C. to not only help us to access grants, uh, we were in D.C., the LOPD was in D.C. on a regular basis, meeting with Department of Justice officials, saying, you need to pay attention to what we're doing here. Uh, we, can, we can take your policy and implement it in a way that shows the success of a model like this. And, and again, uh, what was happening nationally was Clinton was the president. He was pushing uh, community policing. He was pushing 100,000 more cops on the street. And we went up, we went down there and said, we can do this. We can make your policy be successful. So between Marty Meehan, um, Kennedy, Kerry, and all of these other players at the federal level, 
uh, we were able to um, not only just learn about what was available, but build relationships with funders. We had funders calling us saying, we want to pilot this program. Would Lowell be willing to step up and be our pilot? I mean, so we were doing a lot of work in terms of investing in our uh, relationships at these different levels. But also, we became recognized as a can-do city. Like, if you want something to work, Lowell can figure out how to do that. And so I think, in addition to community relationships, it was this whole other effort around this policy-making process and accessing grants. We brought in millions, and they still do. Um, my job was bring, director of research and development, so not just myself, but other people in the administrative office. But we, when I was there, we accessed over thirteen million dollars in grants, and it's still they're bringing, they still bring in millions of dollars of grants. They never did this before, and it wasn't the norm. I think that was the other thing is this wasn't there wasn't any organizational capacity to access these grants, and so between building a reputation and then having capacity, uh, we did that at the same time. Um, there were a lot of internal changes made, right? Of course, that's the whole, the study is sort of organizational change. Changing the mission, investing in different programs, investing in relationships with the school department and the community and uh, through youth programs, um, bringing in over 100 police officers. Yeah, what, 19- about, what about the youth? What were they doing in particular to target young people involved? Uh, well, we worked with the school department and created the, the school resource officer program, and that was in, in, in a way to be proactive, right? Not just to like offer the D.A.R.E. program, which had been sort of the youth program at the time, but to embed school uh, police officers in schools as resources for administration and for students. So building those relationships, so continuing some of the youth programs, like formalizing the D.A.R.E. program. We had a summer program. We had programs in the school, um, creating the Youth Police Academy, um, working with different nonprofit agencies, the now UTEC was, um, if you're familiar with UTEC, the United Teen Equality Center, that was literally... I have one of their cutting boards in my kitchen. That was, um, it was just, it was before UTEC. It was the the form of UTEC before it was even UTEC. The street worker program worked, uh, was out of the city at the time. And so we started to just work much more closely with nonprofit agencies, with UTEC being sort of one of the lead youth agencies, the YMCA, YWCA, Boys and Girls Club, Citing the precinct at the Boys and Girls Club happened during this time, and it was not just because that was an area that could really use some police presence, but also the 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 foresight to see what the positive impact would be of getting the police to be on site with the Boys and Girls Club. So, yeah. so there was an enormous investment in youth and other things too um, around community programs and. The creation of the Lowell Police Department Training Institute, which is, um, I don't know if you know much about that. Uh, at the time, in the early 90s, any new police officer would go to their, re- what would call their recruit training, run by the state, often by the state police or other other locations. Um, and it was pretty traditional law enforcement, you know, sort of all of the things that you need to know as a police officer, you know, constitutional uh, dimensions of the work, defensive driving, use of force and things like that. But it was during this time that we, uh, as an agency, said we want our police officers to be trained in community policing. We want our police officers to understand partnerships. And yes, all of those things that they need to do to be safe and to carry out their work, but also 
we want to be a city and our police agency wants to be an agency that appreciates and values the community. So we started our own police academy mm -hmm. and created sort of the first community policing curriculum for the police academy, which then also grew into providing in-service, which is all police officers in Massachusetts have to have undergo 40 hours of training a year. And so we then started to host other agencies and bring in sort of community policing curricula. And so the LPD Training Institute was created during this time because you can change a lot of things with the current organization, but if you want to really change it over time, you need to change the way people are trained, you need to change the way people are supervised, you need to integrate that into policy. And so it was, what can we do now in the community, but also how do we memorialize our values and our principles through policy, through training, through supervision, so that this really changes the direction of the agency. Right. So I'm going to kind of hit the fast forward yeah. button, and we'll you you after this initial, you know, going back to to you, you're in school, you get your PhD at Brandeis in public administration. Yeah. So I yeah. And, and now because I didn't mention this at the top of the show, you're a professor yep. at Suffolk University on top of these other things that you're doing. Yeah. Uh, and I think in the show description I called you a law professor. You're not a law professor. You're a professor of public administration yeah, at Suffolk, uh, but you're still involved in in. Um, policing organizations and and you have other duties that go beyond yeah, yeah. Um, teaching at Suffolk is that right so yes. what are you uh, yeah. what are you doing so um, I did uh, I left Lowell PD to go to Brandeis to the Heller School for my PhD in social policy a social policy yeah. okay um, and then after finishing there I got a faculty job at Suffolk in the public administration department and so teach in the, our master's in public administration so I one of my job responsibilities is to teach uh, nonprofit and municipal government, state government leaders in management. Okay. And so it's really fun because I get to meet people who work in government, who city government or nonprofits who are trying to run these agencies. Okay. Um, I still, my primary area of research is still policing and public safety, mostly leadership and organizational okay. change. So I do research, I work with police agencies all over the country. Um, on primarily around organizational improvement and organizational change. But I'm lucky because my grounding is in policing, which is, you know, um, a particular type of context or field, right, or environment. And so it's helpful to know, like, when, when I work with police agencies, I'm not just sort of a management person. I'm somebody who's a management person who has deep experience in sure. policing. So bring, bring us to 2020 and, and the problems that police departments and organizations are, are facing right mm -hmm. now because we have certain things going on right now. Yeah. We talked a little bit about how you didn't have to worry about cell phones. Yeah. And um, uh, the um, the um, perception of, I think in the book the term is like officer officer related. Um, I'm trying to Interactions. Think. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, the opioid crisis. Yeah. And there's a whole yeah. bunch of things going yeah. on now in 2020 where you have. Um, massive distrust yep. of the police mm -hmm. in some ways mm -hmm. and uh, complete reliance upon them in other ways because there's dangers and there's threats and there's you know problems in the community where we need them to feel safe uh, and there's budget changes and yep. financial changes yep. right now and technological changes both in terms of sort of monitoring the cops and in terms of the equipment they're using so what's going on in 2020 now? yeah yeah that's what a great the, question what are the problems right now all of those things that you just said. Okay. Uh, 
Check them off. <laughs> but I think, um, you know, I think this is the interesting thing is that you need agencies to adapt because what's happening in, t in the community is shifting all the time, right? So terrorism was the thing that sort of came up after 9-11 and police agencies had to shift um, this explosion of uh, video access, uh, the technology and the video access has really brought them to a place that I think they they weren't expecting, but it's forcing agencies to be more transparent, to be to recognize that they have to have systems in place in order to, like early warning systems, so how do you recognize officers that may be uh, problematic? Um, and how do you intervene so that that it does that you don't honestly so you don't end up on the news and yeah. because I think what happens is there is a sort of a higher bar for the expectations of police sure. as a result of this and that's putting a lot of stress on police agencies because they either don't have the capacity to take let's just say an agency um, over time starts to accept the idea that they're going to wear body worn cameras. Which is a huge fight because it's a major it's a major change for agencies, right? And sort of, what does it mean? Do we have the capacity to um, take that data from those body cameras and analyze it so that we can identify those encounters that maybe give us an opportunity to intervene in someone's behavior? So it's training. So I think between um, this issue about being out there and taping has certainly stressed agencies, but. Agencies have to adapt. They yeah. have to figure out how to do it, just like they did when they literally brought the telephone um, or the um, the call box. Yeah. So, so I, I and I, I learned from your book that they no longer, as as I've learned from TV, you you, you have a big map of yeah. the city of Lowell. Whenever there's a crime, you put a little red thumbtack right, yeah. in there, and that's how you start plotting out. Right. They don't do it that way anymore. No, but data but, has changed the way. Yes, and the con but the concept is still there, right? That's still valuable. Identifying where are the problem locations. So you, you do have, and during the time that I was in Lowell and still, this, ex this sort of appreciation for collecting data and using that data to figure out where do we put our resources, right? So if you have an area of the community that has um, all of a sudden has an uptick in motor vehicle brakes, why is that happening? So there's a different expectation about what the commander is doing or what officers are doing on the street. What is it about that location? Um, studies that I've been involved in in Lowell and elsewhere, what's going on over there? Um, are there things where, and this is where you start to really under, get an appreciation for um, things like broken windows and other types of ways of thinking about crime. Um, what's going on in this parking lot that is allowing for an increase in motor vehicle brakes? Well, all of the the overhead lights are shut off at eight o'clock, and so now nobody can see anybody breaking into that vehicle. Or it's a private lot, and the vegetation is all overgrown, so somebody can get in there and get out of there really without being seen. So the police department, I think Lowell's done a great job, but the industry of policing is moving in this direction, collecting data, using data to make decisions, to also show the community and show policymakers this is what we're doing, right? So when you think about um, the types of practices in private sector, looking at your performance, so you're moving beyond sort of typical how many homicides did we have, which of course is important, but how are we affecting that over time? So this has been an enormous shift in policing where there is this expectation that not only are you engaged with community, but you're also running your organization differently with an eye on performance. 
And some agencies um, have adapted well. Lowell is one of them. Other agencies, they don't have the resources to do that, or they don't have the political will or the 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 support. I mean, it, these things cost money, of course. So it's sort of either you shift in your current resources, right? So do you want to take an officer on the street, off the street, to then go in and collect the data and analyze the data? Right. You tell me sure. what you'd like to do. So I mean, I think it's it's um, it just reinforces that this particular like this particular institution, policing, which has sort of operated in some ways the same for a long time, but it's been changing a lot with technology and new mm. expectations. And um, so now, yes, what are they doing around the opioid crisis, right? I'm involved in a project in Lowell. I just came from a meeting this morning actually talking about this. Um, you've got all these agencies trying to figure out what are we supposed to be doing about this, right? You've got public health, um, Trinity, right, EMS, um, the police department, treatment providers, there isn't enough money, trying to figure it out. It's complicated and it's sort of new. So I think this idea of what's our role as a police agency and how do we do that? So, so do you have a sense of, of what direction they're going to take? Uh, well, for some of it is immediate response, right? Figuring out how do we, uh, how do we one, respond? How do we reduce the number of overdose fatalities, right? And that's triage all the way around, right? But it's also making sure that the, as a community, you're invested in giving these agencies the time, right? Everybody's sort of running around, responding or reacting. And one thing we're not very good at in public administration is planning. We can be good at it, except we don't do it enough across all of the different things that we're doing. So sitting down and saying, well, what's our strategy as a city around how we're going to deal with this opioid crisis, both in terms of trying to reduce fatalities in the moment, but also what are we doing across all of our different agencies to so, sort of coordinate things. Mm -hmm. And now, obviously, with the coronavirus, you know, you're sort of trying to manage that, but shift. Right, so you're sort of in a bind as a municipality of how do you, how do you do all the things that are necessary that people are looking for you to do, given the limited resources and the emergencies. You you know these are all sort of emergencies. Sure. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your book uh, while we have time. Is, is this your second book? So I've done an edited book. Uh, before on uh, its collaborative youth and gang violence okay. responses in cities in Massachusetts, actually. So this is the first book that I've done on my own, and it's really just, it's a book that is really about the research. Yeah. Um, so tell me about the, the writing process. Well, it took a long time. It took, how long did it take? <laughs> so... Um, you know, life. Let me just say for the record, I'm just trying to rationalize why it's taken me so long. Um, I started this project in summer of 2014, mm -hmm. and where I went out for the summer and interviewed all kinds of awesome individuals, community. Who did you uh, Who did you speak with? Uh, well, I talked to 45 people altogether, but I talked to neighborhood leaders um, like our late great Kathy Muldoon, who was a wonderful person for me and our community. Um, and other folks, Wayne and Kathy Hayes, who were very much involved in Lower Belvedere, um, Carol McCarthy's, um, Pastor Cecilio, uh, Frank Cavallo. So I, I, you know, when you do something like this, you sort of have to pick and choose who you have time to interview, who you have access to. So certainly I could have interviewed a lot of other people, but um, Silvana 
uh, at CMA, CMAA. Um, so I tried to get to people who sort of understood the police department's evolution. Uh, so I talked to a lot of community people, uh, Jim Cook, uh, I mentioned Marty Meehan, um, Eileen Donahue. I talked to five city managers. Did you find everyone was was open? Oh, yeah. yeah okay, people, so yeah. everyone was yeah. be, sort of behind yeah. this. So um, for, so I, there were some people that I couldn't get to, so I sort of looked for proxies. Like, um, obviously, I talked to a lot of people in the police agency. I wanted to make sure I talked to somebody from the union. And, okay. you know, so, and everyone was willing yeah. to go on record yeah. and all yeah. that, that yeah. good stuff. Yeah. Uh, so for people who want to get their hands on a copy of that, we talked about this before, the hardbound edition is maybe a little pricey for people who aren't specialists but there's a there's e-book. a less expensive option yep. the ebook which version. is the ebook yep. which they can get on Amazon yes they can and I just for the record say sort of uh, the writing process um, you know it's interesting going through it because not only it takes a long time right you have to find somebody who's willing to publish it hmm. uh, this was research that I started and I did over that almost four and a half year period because there were um, I not only did I do the interviews, but I looked over 25 years worth of policies and procedures at Lowell PD. I looked at 25, 20 years worth of grants. I uh, reviewed over 1,000 Lowell Sun and Boston Globe newspaper articles about it. So it's it was an enormous research task, but also you have to find somebody that's willing to publish it, right? So uh, after doing all that work, so I worked with a fantastic publisher, but mostly an academic publisher, right? And they sort of and that's Rutledge. Rutledge, and they kind of run the show. They they decide, you know, what is this going to look like? What's your timeline? How much is this going to cost? And of course, like a lot of people, you're just happy to get published. Um, the ebook version is super accessible um, and saves a bunch of trees. Um, and so, I think for anybody who's interested in, um, obviously Lowell. So those of us who sort of, you know, have this commitment to the city, it's a great story that documents sort of like a city that sort of really transformed itself through the work of a police agency. So much more was going on. At this time, it was the development of the arena, uh, the baseball park. All of this was happening and wasn't going to happen if we didn't figure out this public safety issue. So people who are interested in government, local government, like how do you think about a police agency when you're trying to shift a community, right? Also, people interested in police community relationships, somebody who might be interested in organizational change. I mean, it's a study of how you literally transform an agency. So it's not just about Lowell, but it's about sort of this interaction between the political aspects, the organizational aspects, the community. Um, And so I think, of course, I'm biased. I think there's there's a lot of interesting things that you can learn about. I think also, we as a as a city and this agency remains that community policing agency, right? So this book, uh, this research covers generally from 1980, 85 through 2005, mm-hmm. which is when most of this transformation happened. But since then, a lot of this work has been um, sustained. You know, there's new forms of relationships. There are new people here, but. I don't think that this agency will ever go back to being a traditional agency that's um, that doesn't have the type of relationships they have with the city now, you know. And they're positioned nationally to continue to access those resources. Um, I'm still involved in a lot of national projects where people look at Lowell. I mean, people talk about Lowell. I mean, they'll say, "I just received a." a call from a Department of Justice person about three weeks ago. Do you think Lowell would want to do this? Wow. So, you know, it's um, there should be also an appreciation 
for how Lowell PD, anyway, in the city is viewed outside of this area. So you're an academic. Does yes. this fly in the face of, of how academics typically, you seem to really be behind the police department. And yes. if I didn't know anything about you other than you're a law or that you're a professor, I would probably expect you're you're more of a more negative. I wouldn't expect you to be yeah. very passionate about yeah. the work that yeah. uh, a, a local police agency is doing. Do you feel like an outsider, or is that just a misconception on my part? Um, no, I think there's both there, actually. I think there are, um, you know, I've drank the Kool-Aid, right, in the scheme of things. And a lot of my academic friends that um, are like me in terms of, and maybe the, because we gravitate towards each other, right? I have friends in Boston, Northeastern, at UMass Lowell, and all of these agencies. We all work together. We work with police agencies. We appreciate that there's still work to be done. But we are generally there to figure out how do we, you know, how do we help the police agency be the best they can? How do we learn from what these agencies are doing? And so for academics like me who are sort of more action research focused, I want to be working with them because I don't know everything. I know there isn't an idea that I have that would be bought into unless I engaged with people. And then I can use that information in at my teaching, right? So in the courses I teach and everything. Now, there are, of course, different ways of thinking about policing, depending upon your inclination, right? So you do have a lot of academics who are laser focused on um, the, um, the negative things that police agencies are doing, and we have to fix those. I'm not saying that we don't. Of course we do, because then we're helping to create a legitimate institution, right? And again, we need the police. Um, just like the state police right now. There's a lot that needs to be done to improve that agency, but when I need them, I want them to show up. And I, so I think I, that's my approach. But there are academics who are, uh, maybe have a different way of thinking about the police. Sure, so we're running out of time, but I have to, to throw open, uh, oh yeah, to, I, I have end? to throw it over to Lou at the end here because I have a thousand questions. I, I, I know he's. <laughs> I can. I can feel. I always feel the gears turning over here, and I know. I know he's. He's. He's thinking. The, he wants last, to jump in. The last question set this up perfectly. In your estimation, there was a seismic shift in public perception with Michael Brown and Ferguson, yeah. and that has redefined success for police departments. It has uh, changed public expectations and public demands of police departments. What is the path back? Because in the past, the path back has been generational. You put school resources office, offices in, mm -hmm. which is a good idea just from a security standpoint. But in schools now, Resource officers have to do more policing. There's more crime. There's more. They have to get more involved. They can't develop those relationships with kids like they did in the past of that trusted friend, or can they? Well, I wouldn't, uh, of course, being an academic, I would say I haven't seen the data that says there's more crime. Um, so I don't think that police in schools are doing more policing. I think they are, I, and I just read something about this recently. Um, I think that uh, we have to have the mechanisms and they have to be institutionalized in police agencies to have the police build relationships with all of their different constituent groups, right? right? So that cannot go away. And in a place like Lowell, I can't see that ever happening. So one of the paths through the difficulties of these incidents uh, between police and communities of color primarily mm -hmm. is relationship building. The challenge is that police agencies 
I mean, some someone will argue against me, are under-resourced. Oh, yeah. Because if you want your police agency to respond to your 911 call, which we all do, and you want them to be there to sort of triage and do all of the things that they do, they're one of the only 24-7 public institutions out there, so everybody calls the police when they need them. If we want them to do that, we need to make sure that they have enough resources to do that. If we want them to also be out there having building relationships, it's not just showing up at one community meeting, right? It's showing up as, as many community meetings as you can. It's being with people. So there's one of the pathways to addressing some of these types of the distrust and the conflict is relationship building. Mm -hmm. Just going back to Doug's question earlier, how did those people in the Lowell Police Department look at me when I first went in there? I had to build a relationship with them, yeah. right? And so then you just hope that it happens. The other thing is you have we have to take care of the bad apples. Yep. You have yeah. to, right? And so that's where things like supervision and accountability and transparency, which are pretty vague terms, uh, but they have to be valued and taken seriously. And so we've got to figure out how to make sure more of that is done. And you see a lot of these agencies falling under things like federal consent decrees because there are patterns of behavior like this. I mean, I think that will continue for a little while. And, and there are a lot of conversations that are happening nationally around, you know, how do we move away from this environment of consent decrees? Well, we do that by making sure that our individual officers and staff and personnel and agencies are committed to the types of things that we value. So it's not easy and no. it's very difficult, and, um, but you have to hold people accountable, individual people, and you can't have people like that in your agency, and you have to intervene early when you see that there's somebody that is sort of behaving in a way that doesn't represent who you are as an agency, um, unfortunately, you have to figure out how to take yeah. care of that right away. Are we being forced towards community reflective policing? In other words, do do the police on the beat, do the police on the patrols in a particular neighborhood have to reflect the community? Yeah, yes, I think so. I think yeah. also um, one of the things, the challenges that's facing policing today is recruitment of police officers, right? So there was a time when the list of individuals who wanted to be a police officer was so long that you could never get to a person, you know, after a certain number. Uh, there is a real challenge right now to get people to want to become a police officer. And I students who want to go into law enforcement? Yes. Okay, yeah, and what yeah, do you yeah. say to them? Do you say, go for it? Are you encouraging? Um, I always, yes, of course I am. Okay, right. <laughs> But I think it's, you know, I think at the same time, one of the things I'm really interested in lately is how are police agencies shifting to accommodate this sort of you know, new generation of individuals who might want to be in uh, policing. And I think that you've got an institution that is sort of stubborn in terms of its structure. And, you know, you have to work an overnight shift when you first come on and you have to work an eight hour shift. And, you know, you have to there's all of these sort of um, policies and practices that are sort of embedded in what a police agency was like in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s. And yes, the agency and the institution has changed, but I think, I don't know that I have the answer to this, but yeah. I'm thinking that when we think about the 21st century police workforce, we have to change as an institution, too, to figure that out, right? And I mean, there's still a lot that has to be worked on. The culture of police agencies is can be challenging, and um, the, the, all of these things... Um, but for me, I think that's interesting stuff to figure out, right? Um, yeah. Because we need the police, and yep. we want them to be successful. So, um, But as a society, we seem to be rooting against them. 
which which I find unfortunate. Yeah, I think yeah. that's because they're up against the media yeah. and they're up against all of these things, which again, many of these things are grounded in legitimate situations, but um, they are such an important institution that I think that they are, <laughs> someone will be critical of this statement, they're undervalued, they're underappreciated, and they're under-resourced, and um, this is a, a puzzle worth figuring out, I think. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, anyway. Well, that's great. So the yeah. book, and thank you so much thanks. No, thanks, for being with us. This yeah, is absolutely fun. fantastic. Yeah. Organizational Change in an Urban Police Department. Go get the ebook on Amazon. Brenda, thank you so yeah, much. I really great. appreciate thanks for it. Me. Thank you, Lou. I'll thanks, see you next Lou. week. Always fun. We'll see you next week. All right. <laughs>